Well, this morning we're going to begin a new study. Uh, we tend here to just go through books of the Bible one paragraph at a time. And this morning we're going to begin a study of the New Testament book of Galatians. Uh, this book, more accurately, is a, is a letter uh, written by the man who came to be known as the Apostle Paul. And it's, it's really difficult or impossible to understand this book if we don't know something about its author, uh, the Apostle Paul. So that's where we're going to start this morning is with a, with a little mini biography of the man who came to be known as the Apostle Paul. Paul was a, was a Hellenized Jew, which means he was a Jewish man who was in a biker gang. That's what it means to be, no. Uh, Hellas was the ancient word for Greece. It just means he was sort of culturally in some ways Greek. He was a Greek speaker. He didn't grow up in the Holy Land. He grew up in what is today Turkey, a place called Tarsus. And uh, he was a, he was definitely religious uh, or Jewish religiously, as Jewish as it gets. He was a rising star in the world of Judaism the national religion of Israel. Um, he, had, he had a Hebrew name, uh, Saul. Paul is actually his Hellenized name, his Greek name, Paul. Uh, we learn elsewhere that he was a Roman citizen. So I can tell you he even had a different name. He had a Roman, uh, an official name of his Roman citizenship. I can't tell you what that is. It's kind of lost to history, but he had one. Um, and he was, as I mentioned, a rising star in the world of religious Judaism. He was the pupil of a famous teacher named Gamaliel. And about 20 years after, or ish, after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, after Jesus appeared to his disciples and sent them out to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, Saul of Tarsus, or Paul, whichever you want to call him, he kind of started a new career path. Because Paul started as, like Dog the bounty hunter, if you know that guy, he was Saul the Christian hunter. Saul, or Paul, made his life's work, his career was hunting down the first Christians who were all, almost all Jewish people, hunting them down and trying to eradicate Christianity from the face of the earth. He got sort of a license from the Jewish leadership to go uh, into local areas, get cooperation from synagogue authorities to find Jews who had accepted Christ as the Messiah and he had an extradition license to ship them back to Jerusalem, to imprison them, to beat them. Uh, before he started that career, he played a role, a key role in the lynching, the, the mob killing of the first Christian martyr, a man named Stephen. Uh, and that's, that was Paul's career. But a funny thing happened to Paul at work one day. As the story goes in Acts chapter 9, is the first place we hear that story, but we read it several other times, Paul received a visit from Jesus. 
the resurrected Jesus. Paul was on his way to the city of Damascus, uh, still breathing murderous threats against Christians, Jesus' followers. And suddenly Paul saw a, a bright light. He didn't see Jesus. He sees this blindingly bright light that's brighter than the noonday sun. He falls to the ground, and from that light, he hears a voice that uses his Hebrew name, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, who are you? And that voice says, I am Jesus. I'm Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting. From that moment on, Paul was a changed man. It really is one of the great proofs of the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because something happened that turned a guy who from in his like culture and in his uh, chosen career path, he had it all. But he left that all behind. He was a, a Christian-hating superstar. He turned his back on that and became the greatest Christian missionary the world has ever seen. The thing that changed him was he met Jesus. And for, for his testimony as a missionary, Paul would get continually beaten, imprisoned, flogged, stoned nearly to death one time. He either did that for a lie or he did that because he really met Jesus. That's what I believe. So Paul is suddenly the greatest church planter, evangelist, and missionary the world has ever seen. And on several different journeys, he traveled and he planted Christian churches. He, he went with this message that Jesus gave him personally, this message we call the gospel, and he starts planting churches wherever he goes. One of the places he went was a region called Galatia. It's just a part of the world in what is today Turkey. And he plants churches there. And this letter we're going to read today, or start reading today, is a letter to the various churches Paul himself planted in that area. Now, that's sort of how Paul got to be Paul. But once Paul meets Jesus and is a changed man, and once Paul starts planting churches and then defending the gospel in those churches, when he, when he starts doing the work that he's so famous for, what would you guess? Once Paul is this superstar of Christianity, what would you guess would be the one sin that would make Paul the angriest when he saw it popping up in churches. Maybe Paul's, maybe Paul's like you. And me, what's the sin that makes you the angriest? Maybe Paul's got the same one. What do you think it would be that would make Paul the angriest? you think it would be some sort of sexual sin? Greed? Maybe it's the wickedness of the governing authorities that makes Paul 
the angriest. Maybe it's, maybe it's not being loving. Paul would talk about all those things. What would you guess is the one sin that makes him the angriest? Would it help if I gave you this hint? I think it's the same thing Jesus spent the most time blasting away at during his ministry. The one sin that makes the Apostle Paul the angriest is is the error or the sin of legalism. We're going to talk a lot about legalism through the course of the book of Galatians. So from the start, we had better define it. Here's what I will be talking about, I'll be meaning throughout the course of this book. When I mention a legalist or legalism, legalism, simply put, is the idea that people merit favor from God through their behavior. It's it's the idea that either we establish a position of favor with God through our behavior, or we maintain a position of favor with God by how I act, by sins I avoid, by good things I do, by religious stuff. And legalism is the error that leads the Apostle Paul to sit down and write this letter, and it will be Paul at his absolute angriest. Paul's going to be writing to people he knows, he loves, he cares about. As I mentioned, he established these churches, places like Derby and Lystra and Iconium and Pisidian Antioch, if you know the book of Acts. Those are the places. But Paul has received word that legalism has crept in and taken hold in these churches that he loves so much. There are, there are false teachers who, who have begun teaching that faith God's grace alone that comes to those who believe that's not enough to put people in a position of favor with God. They're teaching this error that faith alone is not enough to seal forever God's opinion of someone who believes and trusts in Jesus Christ. If God is going to have a favorable opinion of you, they would say, there are some other things you have to do. They would say, of course we have to believe that Jesus died and rose again. But to really rest in God's favor, it is faith in Jesus Christ plus some other things. Now as we go through this book, we'll see specifically for them, I may also call these specific false teachers Judaizers because they, they want to put Judaism into Christianity. Jesus would say it this way, they try to pour the new wine of Christianity into the, the, the old wineskin of Judaism, which doesn't work. So they're going to be, they're going to be requiring things like circumcision. You have to believe in Jesus, of course. 
but the males in your family better be circumcised. And you better uh, keep the Sabbath and some of these other festivals and seasons and days. But if you boil it down, their argument is this. You're really not a Christian? God is really not okay with you. God cannot look on you with favor unless you believe in Jesus and... And then it really doesn't matter what you fill in the blank with. It'll get us to the same spot. It's interesting that this false idea is already taking root in churches within 20 years of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It starts very early and it has never left. And sometimes... I'll be honest with you. This doesn't feel like a very big deal. So, I mean, what's the big deal? Some people think, yes, you have to believe in Jesus Christ, trust He paid for your sins, but you also have to be baptized, or you're not really okay with God. It's a big deal. Or, you have to do some other religious thing. There's lots of them. Or, you're not a real Christian. God, you can't rest in God's favor. You really don't stand in a position of favor with God if you sin one of these sins. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But it was to Paul. Galatians is a bomb (laughs) that that Paul drops into what is today Turkey, trying to eradicate this from the church, from Christianity. Unfortunately, the battle is ongoing. Fortunately, we've still got the bomb. We're going to continue to fight Paul's fight using Paul's weapon, this letter to the Galatians. But I want to camp here for a second. It is not hard to see where legalism comes from. It's not, to, it's not hard to understand the motives behind legalistic tendencies. In fact, I think it's really important that when, when I... From up here, or when you, when you think about reading, when you think about the legalists, when I talk about the Judaizers, when I talk about the legalism in this book, please don't think of those false teachers like monsters when you picture them, right? Try not to picture them having like a peg leg and an eye patch and a a hook for a hand, okay? I think they look way more like me and like you. It's very easy. To be a legalist. In some ways, we probably all are. When uh, Brian Clark, who's now pastor emeritus at Lincoln Berean, when he taught through Galatians years ago, he encouraged his congregation to start here with this confession. I am a legalist. But I don't want to be. Legalism has always crept into churches from good motives, because it always creeps, it always creeps into Christians. 
from good motives. Very few people have ever become legalistic because they hate Jesus, they hate the Bible, and they hate his church. That's not how this starts. It starts because I love those things and I think I'm defending them. Here's the way I think legalism always starts. First, people hear the gospel, the good news, the message of the cross. And here it is. The gospel says, I'm a sinner, and so I deserve wrath and punishment from God. But God sent his one and only son to, to do everything it takes to make me okay with the holy and righteous God. Because the punishment I deserve for my sin went on him. And the gospel says, Paul lays this out most clearly in the book of Romans, that I am justified by faith. Here's what that means. Justification is when the God of the universe drops his gavel on the courtroom bench of heaven and declares a person who believes to be righteous forever. And God promises to do that for everyone who trusts that he did everything it takes for God to have favor on me. That's justification. And Paul is so clear in Romans that that happens by faith alone. That's the gospel. The good news is me, a sinner, can be righteous before the God of the universe. Because of that, the gospel teaches If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you trusted he did what it took for you to be okay with God from the moment you first believed, God loved you as much as he's ever going to love you for all of eternity. Do you know that? God is not waiting to see how you do to decide how much he loves you. He's not waiting to see how you do how righteous you become because when you believe in Jesus Christ you bear the righteousness of Jesus Christ you can't improve on that that's the good news because of what Jesus has already done God loves me completely and eternally with a love that can't increase or decrease here's where legalism starts I hear that message I understand that message I believe that message and I start to think but wait a minute wait wait a minute if if that really if that really becomes our message if we If we tell people that, if we tell people they don't have to do anything for God to love them completely and eternally, man, people are going to go crazy. This place is going to be a nightmare. Nobody will come back to church. They certainly won't behave themselves. People will, if that's our message, people will treat that like it is a license to sin. 
People will treat that like, hey, I don't have to do it. God loves me completely, eternally. So now I can sin whatever sin I want to sin, and he still has to let me into heaven anyway. That's what people are going to do if we make that gospel of grace our message. So we got to help it. That's where legalism comes in. We begin to add things to the message of the gospel. Sometimes the things we add become a part of a denomination's official like platform. Sometimes they're more passive-aggressive. But if you stick around long enough, you'll learn where the lines are. You'll learn what sins I can actually sin and no one will doubt whether I'm a Christian and which sins that if I struggle with or sin, they'll try to get rid of me one way or another. And you know what? People do take advantage of the gospel in that way. People do use grace. As if it is a license to sin. People do use the gospel, abuse the gospel in ways God does not want us to use and abuse it. But that doesn't give us a right to add things to the gospel. Adding behavioral requirements to the gospel is too dangerous of a game to play. And we're going to see that throughout the book of Galatians. And listen, if you've never at least asked or pondered or wondered about questions like this, if you've never asked the question, wait a minute, you're telling me all I have to do is believe in Jesus Christ And then I can sin, whatever sin I want to sin, and God has to let me into heaven anyway. If you've never asked that question, you've never heard the real gospel. Because it's absolutely the most logical question to ask. That's why Paul constantly was was asked, or, you know, rhetorically asking and answering that question. That's that's what we're going to be talking about. But this seems, it's so logical. We can't make the gospel of grace our official message because that will not be safe. Who said anything about safe? Jesus never said this would be safe. That's what we're going to be talking about between now and, oh, Labor Day. But we better get this book started or we'll never get there. This morning, uh, I want to let Paul introduce this letter he wrote to the churches he founded in the region of Galatia. We're going to read the first five verses of the book. Um, As with all uh, formal letters in the first century, um, they, like we we do the the dear so-and-so at the beginning and the sincerely so-and-so at the end. In the first century, they did them both at the beginning. So Paul's going to identify himself, he's going to identify his audience, and he's going to give this Uh, introductory greeting, but there's so much more than that going on in these first five verses. We're actually going to learn what this whole book is about. 
in these first five verses. You want to know what the book of Galatians is about? Paul's authority and Paul's message. And that's what the first five verses are about. I'll show you what I mean. Let's read it. Let's read it. So this is Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. We read this. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. According to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forevermore. Amen. That's where we're going to stop today. Paul's main purpose in writing this letter, his purpose is to defend the gospel against additives. He wants a gospel with no additives, no preservatives, fully organic, all that stuff. But Paul knows if he is rejected personally, his message will be rejected also. Does that make sense? So Paul has to defend his own authority. So that's where he starts. Right from the beginning, Paul identifies himself, but he does it a special way in Galatia. He identifies himself as an apostle, but not just any old apostle. He says, I'm an, I'm an apostle not sent by people, sent straight from Jesus Christ and God the Father. Here's why Paul says this. This word, apostle, is a very churchy word for us, but it wasn't a churchy word in the first century. It was just a word, okay? And then, because it was a word before it had religious or Christian connotations, throughout the New Testament, that word apostle gets used in different ways. And Paul wants to make sure from the beginning the Galatians know how he's using the word apostle. See, the word, the word apostle just means sent one or an emissary or a representative. If there was some meeting of the churches in this town and we sent you as a representative to represent our church, we could call you an apostle. We wouldn't because people would take that a different, you know, in a, in a way we didn't intend. But that's what the word means, just a representative. And throughout the New Testament, this word does get used that way. Paul himself in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, he called a group of people apostles of the churches. And he, he was just talking about people who were sent out from some churches. There are people in the New Testament like Epaphroditus, Junius, and Silas who are called apostles, rightfully so, grammatically correctly. But there's a different way to use this word apostle, like capital A apostle. The apostles were a special group of men chosen specifically by Jesus. When Jesus was alive, most of you know, he, he chose 12 men to be his closest followers, often just called the 12 or the 12 disciples. And then when Jesus sent them out, they're renamed the apostles, which just means they're sent out, representatives of Jesus. One of, the, one of those disciples, Judas, betrayed him. He committed suicide, and so there were only 11. One more was added later, but we won't get into all of that. 
just know there are a special group of apostles that are like the capital A apostles. There are other people in the New Testament who are sort of like lowercase apostles. Confused yet? Does that make sense? Okay. Here's why Paul is saying what he's saying. There are opponents of his that have showed up in these churches in Galatia who apparently are carrying a message like this. We know Paul was here and started this church. We're so glad he came to tell you that Jesus was crucified, he was buried, and he did rise again. But Paul missed some things. We are here to complete Paul's message. And somebody raises their hand and says, well, wait a minute, but isn't Paul an apostle? Oh, yes. But he's like an apostle like Epaphroditus is an apostle. He's, a, he's, a, he's just like a representative. He's a lowercase apostle. So Paul, from the very first sentence of the book, says, I'm, this, is, this letter is from Paul, an apostle, a, a capital A apostle. I'm not an apostle sent from other men. I'm sent directly from Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. I also uh, have the agreement of a whole bunch of other people who are with me. I'm not just a lone ranger. Other people recognize this. I am a capital A apostle. You should accept my message because you should accept my position. That's where he starts. Paul's going to talk a lot about his authority in this book. And now Paul's going to introduce the message of his book. And he starts very intentionally with this word right here, grace. After, after uh, defending his apostleship, Paul starts with this word, grace, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our, to, uh, gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Paul begins with grace. Grace has often been defined as unmerited or unearned favor. You know what you and I need more than we need about any, anything else in the world? In, we need the God of the universe to look on us with his favor. We need him to see us favorably. That's what, that's what we need. Grace is when someone gets favor that they don't earn, that they don't merit. We need for God to look at us and deem we're good enough. Grace says we cannot earn that distinction. Grace says it must be given. We can't merit a distinction of good enough from God. And listen, we couldn't earn the distinction of being good enough in God's eyes before we came to believe in Jesus. We can't merit the distinction of being good enough after we have believed in Jesus. We, will need, we still need God's favor as much as we ever have. 
but it will always, 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 always be a gift of grace. That's why Paul starts with that word. Paul very quickly connects the word grace with the word peace. There's only one way for us to have peace with God. It's by a gift of God's grace. Maybe the most important question in life is this. How do I obtain peace with God? If there's a God out there who created me, that means I am accountable to him. He's way greater than me. I'd better figure out how to be at peace with him and not at enmity with him. To be at peace with him, not fighting against him. The gospel says the only way to be at peace with God is through grace. Every religion in the world says the way to be at peace with whatever higher power is out there is not through a gift of grace, it's through effort, it's through behavior. It is by doing what that higher power wants from me well enough, often enough, consistently enough. Grace says, you can't do that. You need a gift. Christianity is unique in that way. It says God did everything I need in order to be at peace with him. He bestows a declaration of his favor on those who believe that he did everything at the cross. And peace with God comes from that grace. But listen, a feeling of peace is supposed to come by believing in God's grace. Paul said in the book of Romans, for those who have believed in Jesus Christ, been justified, he said this, we have peace with God. He didn't say, hang in there, maybe one day. We have peace with God. And this is true every day in every way. Paul's going to be contending in this book, my justification when God declared me righteous, that happened by grace. Paul's going to be saying, my sanctification, my sanctification where I grow in this faith, I become more and more like Jesus, happens because of grace, through faith. It's true every day, in every way. Now, when I meet Jesus, I will begin to change. I will but the speed at which I change, the things we change varies greatly. And it's grace from beginning to end that gives me my position with God, not how well I'm doing. So listen, flashback to when I was teaching school. Eyes and ears, kids. Let me have some eye contact here. Some of you have believed in Jesus for a long time. Some of you do not feel like you are at peace with God because of it. 
because you believe your peace with God depends on your behavior. Depends on how I did this day, this week, this month. God's not waiting to see how you do to decide if, you're, if his favor rests on you. It's done. It is over. And the lack of peace you feel from God, that is about the amount of our faith and trust in what he has promised. It's not because of the way he actually feels toward you. If you believe that Jesus went to that cross in your place, can I tell you something I just want you to believe? God loves you. Like, he, and he likes you. And he wants to be with you. The real you. Because the more we think it depends on our behavior, the more we will keep a holy God at arm's distance. We just will. We'll be stuck in this pattern of failure and self-hatred and he can't possibly like me. Why? Because I think his opinion of me depends on me. When he said it depends on him, and it's done. But I'm getting ahead of myself in this book. You might be sitting there thinking, how is that possible? How's that possible? It can't be that easy. To which I always respond with this question. Easy for whom? Right? You're telling me, once I believe in Jesus, I can sin all the sin I want to sin and God is still happy with me. It can't be that easy. Easy for whom? That's a very important question. It was not easy for the one who actually did it. God established peace with you. By destroying his son. That was incredibly costly. You just didn't have to pay it. That's what forgiveness means. You don't have to pay the penalty for your sin. He did. And he promised you have peace with him. So who are you going to believe? You or God. How is it possible? How is it possible that I can have peace with God through grace? Thank you for asking. Paul tells us. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. There it is. You have peace that comes from a a gift of God's grace through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for your sins. I'm not at peace with God because God doesn't care about my sins. May it never be. God God hates sin. Always has, always will. God promised. He hated sin so much that God promised, you sin, I'll kill you. Sin costs death. Sin costs blood. 
Sin costs separation from a holy God. That's what God said. But God gave Jesus to shed the blood, to experience the death, and to to stomach the separation from God so you don't have to. His death was substitutionary. And listen, God is satisfied with the amount of punishment with which your sins have been punished. He gave himself for our sins and it was enough. That's all we will ever need to enjoy peace with God. And once someone has peace with God, we have already been rescued from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom uh, be glory forever and ever. And here's kind of where the trouble starts. All right, Matt, you had me there for a minute. All right, I got, the, I got the substitutionary death. I got the grace, and that leads to peace. But if you think I've been rescued from this present evil age, you're just not paying attention. God gave Jesus to die for our sins in order to rescue us from this present evil age. Not future, even right now. And he does that because this present evil, wicked age, it's what tells me I have to perform at a given level for God to like me. I've been rescued from that. It's what tells me if I'm going to have hope, if I'm going to have peace, if I'm going to have joy, I've got to achieve at certain levels, defeat certain enemies, accomplish certain things, And the gospel says, no, you don't. You've been rescued from that rat race, from that hamster wheel that won't work. And you know it. You know it. That's Paul's message. That's what he'll be defending. It is the grace of God. It's through a person, by a price, for a purpose. God gave his son, Jesus Christ, to take the punishment your sins deserve so that you can be rescued from this evil age. And now the question of this book is going to be, can you actually believe this? The reason Paul was so passionate about this topic is because he's Paul. (laughs) He was Paul the Christian hunter. At the point in Paul's life where God decided, I'm going to, I am going to, this this guy is mine, my chosen instrument. I love him so much. Let me just go down and get him. At the time when God decided that, Paul was trying to kill followers of Jesus. The reason Paul's passionate about grace is it's like he's screaming all the time, What else do you think I'm doing here? You know who I was. And God loved me then. If God could love and accept and choose and welcome Paul when he was trying to kill Christians, what gives you the right to think God can't love you because this last week you blew it by fill in your blank. 
Can you believe this? Paul knew he could never deserve his position before God. My friend, you can't either. We agree on that, on that point. But you knew, most of you, you knew you could not get into a relationship with God without his grace. I want you to believe as we study this book, you can't maintain a relationship with Jesus Christ apart from his grace. If you try, one of two things will happen. You're going to live this life of constant shame and defeat and guilt and I'm not good enough. Of course you're not good enough. That's why he died in the first place. Or you will live a life of self-deception where you convince yourself God loves you because you are good enough. And that's just as dangerous as the first one. You'll set a bar of behavior that you know you can clear and think, I'm doing pretty good. No wonder God loves me. I did pretty good this week. But in both of those things, you will keep the God of grace at arm's length. One, because you're just convinced he couldn't possibly love you. And the other one, because you know somewhere in your heart, if I get close enough to God, I will see this is not his bar I'm clearing. It's mine. So I'm going to keep it at him at arm's length and not have any real conversations with, with him. Not have any difficult conversations with him. I can't go to him and say, here's what I blew this week. I'm going to be praying for you between now and Labor Day. Every Sunday morning when these seats are empty, I come in this room and I pray for that seat and the lunkhead who's going to sit in it. <laughs> and here's what I'm going to be praying. That you would believe in the just wondrously beautiful grace of God. I'm going to pray that you would actually believe God really loves you. Like you, the one who walks in and sits down as you are so that you can enjoy that peace and establish a real relationship with him, a real one that's based on his grace, not your behavior. You're going to be prayed for in that way for the next six months or so. That God might make out of us a people of grace, that he might really finally extend grace and peace to you. Let's pray. Our Father, we come here and every week we talk about the cross and your grace. And then we leave here and struggle to actually believe it. We, we are a collection of legalists because we believe you can't like us unless we do unless we avoid, unless we start. God, will, will you help us to figure out how much you love us so that we can figure out the ways you want to help us? 
that you'd grow us in sanctification to be more and more like Jesus, but like the real Jesus who loves people where they're at and what they're struggling with. You might make us like him. You'd help us see the additives and preservatives we add to the gospel without knowing it. It doesn't need any help. It is our help. Bestow on us your grace and peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand with us and we will finish our time together.